Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What's up, everybody? Remember how bad the audio quality was in the Johnny Boulder episode? Well, it's going to be the same in this episode because we recorded both of these back to back. So please bear with us through this audio quality issue and rest assured that we have resolved it. So it won't be a problem in the future. Thanks so much for your support. Again, we apologize. And hopefully you're able to fight through the bad audio quality and enjoy two comedians Joking about Swedish history. Det här är Teach Me Sweden, en historia podcast där två komiker försöker lära varandra historia från Sverige. Jag heter Erik Broström. And I'm Jonathan Rollins, and in this episode I'll be teaching Eric about a world traveler that happens to fall on the wrong side of history. Och uh, vilka orter besökte han då? <laughs> you get there a lot of uh, cities and places that uh, I will probably never see again. This is a master class in pronunciation. So <laughs> buckle up. <laughs> buckle up. Yeah, just... <laughs> uh, stay tuned for some, uh, some, some teachers. Ja, åh vad är det då? Jag ska sitta och lyssna och njuta. Yeah man. Uh, shit, I'm, I'm gonna get right into it man. Uh, yeah. this, this story is gonna be, uh, it's gonna start in 19, I'm sorry, 1865. My favorite. Yes, February 19th, 1865. Sven Anders Hedin was born. Okay. Anders yeah. Tolleson. Nope, you ever heard No. He's born in Stockholm, Sweden. You ever heard of Stockholm? No. It's in Jämtland. Uh, uh, <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> no, he was born to Abraham Ludwig Hedin. Okay, Abraham. Oh, yes, I know, right? I haven't. I don't think I've seen the Abraham before. Oh yeah, before uh, before I get go any further into it, shout out to uh, Simon that suggested this. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, hey, I had Simon. to. Yeah, what's up? I had to. Uh, I had to to look it all up, but he was like, "It's gonna be gold," and he was right. Okay, cool. Uh, so Abraham Ludwig Hedin is the father of our subject. He was uh, the town architect. The Stockholm architect. He was like the town architect. I guess maybe in the, that part of Stockholm. Stockholm is still to be Yeah, yeah. So he, yeah. Uh, and his mother, Anne Sophia, uh, mm-hmm. was uh, Anna Sophia Berlin, is her name. Berlin? <laughs> yeah. Nice. And she was a woman. Yeah, uh, so. and that's, that's, <laughs> that's that. not it. <laughs> and it's unfortunate. That's all I got to say about, about that. that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> When uh, Hedin was 15 years old, Swedish Arctic explorer Adolf 
Erik. This is back when people named the children Adolf. Yeah, I found funny hat. Adolf Erik Nordenskjöld returned home after his first navigation of the northern sea route. Okay. Or sea route. Uh, Hedin was fascinated by the hero's welcome that he received. And uh, he resolved to become an explorer himself. Hey, we have had a lot of experiences on this before. Yeah, man. Spännend. Uh, he described the experience uh, in his book "My Life as an Explorer," as uh, uh, the, which uh, came about later. On April twenty fourth, eighteen eighty, the steamer Vega sailed into Stockholm's Ström. The Ström, sorry, mm-hmm. the entire city was illuminated. The buildings around the harbor glowed in the light of innumerable lamps and torches. Yes. Yes. From båten, it was a many lamps from båten, so till till the Stockholm was up. Yeah. Uh, gas flame. This is his description. Gas flames depicted the constellation of Vega on the castle. Amidst this sea of light, the famous ship glided into the harbor. I was standing on the Södermalm Heights with my parents and siblings, from which we had a superb view. I was gripped by great nervous tension. I will remember this day until I die, as it was decisive for my future. Thunderous jubilation resounded from quays, streets, windows, and rooftops. That is how I want to return home someday. I as thought a, to myself, as a boat, <laughs> I would like to have lights strewn upon me. <laughs> I would like to one day be a pride parade. <laughs> no, he wanted to be an explorer himself and get people to uh, to uh, welcome him in the way that they did to this uh, northern club. The chance of a helst vill ha uppmärksamhet och inte upptäcka saker. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. In uh, in in May of 1885, he graduated from Biskovska Secondary School in Stockholm, mm-hmm. and then he uh, accepted an offer to accompany a student, Erhard Sandgren, as a private tutor to Baku, which is the capital city of Azerbaijan. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, Sandgren's father was working as an engineer in the oil fields mm-hmm. of uh, Robert Nobel, who we know very well. Oh. It's all tied. It's tied together, man. Shit, that's all. Uh, and afterward, he intended a course in topography. Topography. No. But yeah, to- topography. Yeah, but it's, yeah. it's like when you make uh, the the layout of uh, the land, like uh, making maps. Like a map maker. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's called cartography, but topography is in that, it's in that area. Oh, okay. Um, of like the land, the layout of the land. Oh, okay. Oh. Uh, and he, he attended that course uh, for general staff officers for one month in the summer of 1885 and took a few weeks of instructions in portrait drawing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that comprised his entire training in those areas. And he will use that later. Okay. It looks like it's a long feeling. No, I'm, one of I'm done. Mm-hmm. I can now draw a portrait and a map. <laughs> <laughs> on, uh, on, 15th, on August 15th, 1885, He went back to Baku with Erhard Sandgren and instructed him there for uh, uh, seven months. And he himself began to learn Latin, Oi. French, mm-hmm. German, yeah. Persian, yeah. Russian, yeah. English, wow. and Tatar languages. What is it? Tatar. Tatar. I don't know what Tatar is. Tatar is like a biff that is not Oh, he learned all the raw languages. <laughs> The languages that aren't done yet. <laughs> Ebonics? No, no, no. It's Tartar. I speak well the languages, medium rare, 
and raw. <laughs> tartar. And tartar. He, he later learned several Persian dialects as well as Next. Turkish. Kyrgyz. I don't even know how to say that. Kyrgyz. Mongolian. Tibetan. And some Chinese. <laughs> sound like a liar. Yeah, it looks like it. It's cool that he can do it. I'm all the most talking. And some Chinese. <laughs> That's the hard one. Yeah, I sat there and said, Oh, can you have a Chinese guy? But what where do you hear my tartar? <laughs> and uh, on April 6, 1886, he left uh, Baku for Iran, which mm. was then called Persia, mm. traveling by paddle steamer over the Caspian Sea, riding through the Alborz Range to Tehran, Esfahan, Shiraz, and the harbor city of Bushir. Mm-hmm. From there, he took a ship up to the Tigris River to Baghdad, which was then in the Ottoman Empire, returning to Tehran via Kermanshah, then traveling through the Caucasus and over the Black Sea to Constantinople. Jesus. Yeah, he was a traveling man. He wanted to be an explorer. Yeah, yeah. And he's doing it. Men, nu åker han ju bara alla favorit, så han inte en explorer. Yeah, no, he is. He's trying. And then he returned to Sweden, arriving in September of 1886. Okay. Well, yeah, how much more that talk also? Yeah, that's well, that's been what two years now. Yeah. Um. Oh shit. Uh. No, not really. Not even. It's like six months. April to September. But now, learn all the languages. That must have been. Oh, that was over years. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1887, he published a book about these travels, uh, entitled "Through Persia, Mesopotamia, and the Caucasus." Ja, det var ju en beskrivning av yeah. det. Det var inte särskilt fantasifullt. Uh, spoiler! <laughs> I'm gonna guess you went through. Mm, uh, låt mig börja med förordet och säga Ni kommer aldrig gissa vad jag har varit. <laughs> From uh, 1886 to 1888 he studied under geologist Valdemar Brogger mm-hmm. uh, in Stockholm and Uppsala. And uh, in Uppsala the studies, the subjects of geology, mineralogy, Zoology and Latin. You know what? I was thinking about that as I was reading this. Um, these motherfuckers like to learn back then. Mm-hmm. I don't know anybody that is this into like that was what? How, how many languages have we named? Like twelve, and then uh, study different studies. Men det här, det är de här jävla skärmarna. Det är här skiten. Jag är ju en videogeneration. Jag är dum i huvudet. Men tänk, alltså typ Strindberg, vår största författare i Sverige. Han älskade att läsa. Och han läste, eh, det här är bara saker jag vet om honom, det här inte om honom, men han läste liksom tidningsutklipp om och om igen för att han, han hade sån lästörst. Wow. För att man, man förstår hur man läser och man bara, jag vill veta mer, jag vill veta mer. Det är typ som att du ser Breaking Bad, tredje säsongen, och bara, okay. nej jag vill inte veta mer. Det är typ den grejen. Det här är, det här är istället för Breaking Bad. Då lär man sig latin. Instead of learning Latin, we get to to watch uh, Walter Whit- Walter Whitman doing this. Yeah, thing. yeah. Uh, in uh, December 1888, he became a candidate in philosophy. Okay. Uh, and from 18 October 1889 until March 1890, he studied in Berlin under Ferdinand Freiherr von der Richt- Richthofen. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've had this difficulty before with these. These are the hardest 
letter combinations I've seen so far. I think you're doing marvelously. <laughs> Thank you. On uh, May 12th, 1890, he accompanied uh, as interpreter and vice consul a Swedish legation to Iran, which was to present the Shah of Iran with the insignia of the Order of Ser Seraphim. As part of the Swedish legation, he was at an audience of the Shah, Nasser al-Din Shah Kayar in Tehran. He spoke with him and later accompanied him to the El Burj mountain range. And on July 11th, 1890, he and three others climbed Mount Damavand, where he collected primary material for his dissertation. Don't mistake it, Barry. Yeah. And he collected some, some things for his dissertation okay. in the class he's doing. Uh, starting in September, he traveled on the Silk Road via Mashhad, Ashgabat, Bukhara, Samarkand, Tashkent, and Kashgar in the west to the western outskirts of the Taklamakan Desert. Yeah, nailed it. He's probably he's probably <laughs> lying about this too. He could just say this shit. Everybody's like, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, they will dip them tiden också. Men they will that they just inte flög in med Juga för att yeah, of course, yeah. And on his trip home, he visited the grave of the Russian Asian scholar Nikolai. Shvalsky. Yeah! <laughs> in Karakol on the shore of Lake Isikul. I'm right through this too. Uh, this is hard, man. On, uh, on March 29th, 1891, he was back in Stockholm. Nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, now I'm clear. Yeah, and that's it. So thanks for listening. <laughs> You've learned the name of every Middle Eastern place. Uh, he, he published the books King Oscar's uh, Legation to the Shah of Persia. He's very, he's very specific about his titles. Uh, in 1890. And through, in his through series, through Chorasan and Turkestan about his journey. So, okay. so there's two more books. Uh, so he's the through guy. <laughs> and now he decided, I'm going to become an explorer. Oh, <laughs> Okay. Yeah. He was attracted to the idea of traveling to the last mysterious portions of Asia and filling the gaps by mapping an area completely unknown in Europe. But why did he not do that when he was there? He was there. He was in the Middle East. Yeah, but there's still not forced there also. Why did he go now? It says in Asia, filling the gaps that, that aren't filled yet. Oh, I can't do geography, but okay. Då. It's not okay. far. He was closer to Asia than what he was going to go. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's just, that's all I'm saying. He had to regroup. As an explorer, he became important for the Asian and European powers who courted him, invited him to give numerous lectures, and hoped to obtain from him, in return, topographic, economic, and strategic information about inner Asia, which they consider part of their sphere of influence. Okay. So now he's becoming important. Yeah. Sounds a bit boring also. <laughs> yeah. But I mean he's, he's he knows why not why learn 15 languages yeah. if you're not gonna go around the take that the dad in drum. Ah oh it's gonna utforska them little more utforska the områdena i Asien och se hur deras social ekonomiska status and I know 15 languages, none of them are I just know a little Chinese. I know I know some Chinese. <laughs> So I'm going to go out there and try to figure my way out <laughs> around there in uncharted territory. <laughs> this is like, uh, this is the confidence of a white man. Yeah, because <laughs> now he's also angry that he didn't learn to say all Chinese. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Latin? <laughs> Nobody's even speaking it. <laughs> 
It's like portions. It's like the portions of languages. Vad vill du lära dig? Kinesiska eller dödsspråk? Dödsspråk! As the era of discovery came to a close around 1920, Hedin contented himself with organizing the Sino-Swedish expedition for qualified scientific explorers. Mm-hmm. His first expedition between 1893 and 1897, Hedin uh, investigated uh, the Pamir Mountains, which are located between Central Asia, South Asia, and East Asia. Okay. All right. Uh, he traveled through the Tarim Basin in Xinjiang region, across the Taklamakan Desert, Lake Karakoshim, and Lake Boston. Uh, he proceeded, or as they call it, Boston. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> How come they throw that? Are you a cop? <laughs> uh, he studied northern, and then he proceeded to study northern Tibet. He covered 26,000 kilometers. Wow. So, you know, the set photos. Yeah. And uh, that's 16,000 miles for those of you that uh, like the dumb American. <laughs> Uh, measurements uh, on this on this journey, and he mapped ten thousand four hundred and ninety eight kilometers of them on five hundred and fifty two sheets. So he was using that uh, one month of portrait <laughs> and topography lesson. Yeah, vet inte vad det är, men jag blir inte imponerad över det. No, that's some big numbers though. Yeah, yeah, it's big numbers. <laughs> so wait, so you walked around? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and I drew. Mm. On a lot of paper. Uh, jag har sparat 75 000 kapsyler. Ah. Okej. Okay. Uh. Ja, visst. Absolut. För, för många. Hur många kapsyler har du hemma? Yeah. Not impressed. <laughs> no, not impressed. Uh, approximately 3,600 kilometers led through previously uncharted areas. Okay. So that's how much new he... Det är lite coolt. Det är det. He started out on expedition... On October 16th, 1893, from Stockholm, um, traveling via St. Petersburg and Tashkent to the Pamir Mountains, several attempts to climb the 7,546 meters high Musgata, called the Father of the Glaciers in the Pamir Mountains, were unsuccessful. Mm. Couldn't do it. No. How long did it Three meters. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's like, ah, I don't know. Uh, don't see how far up we got. Uh, uh, let's see if Latin can get me up there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, know, I do zero push-ups, but I speak 15 languages. <laughs> and some Chinese. <laughs> let's do this! Exactly. It's like my colleague says there, $15.30. And some Chinese. And change. Uh, he, he remained in Kashgar until April of 1895, and then he left on April 10th with three local escorts <laughs> from the village of Merket to cross the Taklamakan Desert via Tusluk to the Khotan River. And of course, local escorts is not <laughs> what you think. Exactly. Since their water supply was insufficient, seven camels died of thirst. Oh yeah, they were traveling. What? Om kameler dör av Hur fan kan de leva då? Seven camels died of thirst. You let me finish my sentence. Seven camels died of thirst. As did two of his escorts. Yeah. 
according to Hadin's dramatization and probably inaccurate account. Okay. Jag säger bara att kameler föds yeah. törstiga. Yeah. Och sen är de törstiga resten av livet. Så so, yeah, vi var seven camels. Yeah. Uh, pretty much the seven camels died. And two uh, escorts. Yeah. Oh, fuck the escorts. How many camels did you say? Seven. Um, Bruno Bauman traveled on this route in April 2000 with a camel caravan. And ascertained that at least one of the escorts, who, according to Hadeen, had died of thirst, had survived, and that it's impossible for a camel caravan traveling in springtime on this route to carry enough drinking water for both camels and travelers. Okay, so he called him a liar. Aha, uh-huh, something. Okay, he, a guy who did it in the year 2000. Yeah, Bruno Bauman is his name, mm-hmm. and he was like he called bullshit on it. Okay, that uh, you can't. There's, there's no way to do. To travel this way with camels. Hmm. I know, man. Maybe who knows? We would say it's impossible to fill the pyramids. Eller hur? So I don't know, man. Det är bara offra man tillräckligt mycket människor så är inget problem att bygga en pyramid. Especially if his maps and stuff are accurate. Eller hur? Hey, fun. What if? I want to see the maps. Like what if it's like a It's like what? Wait a minute. This is a smiley face. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mountain is spelled with a backwards N. <laughs> Wait a minute. According to other sources, Hadeen had neglected to completely fill the drinking water containers for his caravan at the beginning of the expedition and set out for the desert with only half as much water as could actually be carried. Ska vi fylla upp flaskorna? Nej. Jag kan latin. Can you tell one of the escorts who speaks Chinese? Can you... Uh... I can only tell them some things. <laughs> I can tell them some things. <laughs> <laughs> But they're saying that when he noticed the mistake, <laughs> it was too late to return. No. <laughs> so he couldn't go back. So go in about prata some Chinese. Hey, uh, where's the rest of the water? <laughs> <laughs> Weren't we supposed to have 30 jugs? We only got 15 jugs of water. Han skulle säga så här, fyll på vattenflaskorna. Men han var bara så fyll... I know some Chinese. And they're like, you sure? Uh, It was too late to uh, return. Obsessed by his urge to carry out his research, Hadeen deserted the caravan and proceeded alone on horseback with his servant. This is someone else's account. Okay. Uh, And then when that escort also collapsed from thirst, Hadeen left him behind as well. Okay. But managed to reach a water source at the last desperate moment. Yeah, <laughs> a douche. And then he did return to his servant with water and rescued him. Ah, okay. Redeemed. Nevertheless, his ruthless behavior earned him massive criticism. Yeah, hi, yeah, yeah. But they said, they're saying he did that. And he was just like, oh, seven camels died. What's the problem? Mm-hmm. In, uh, in January 1896, after a stopover in Kashgar, Hadeen visited the 1,500-year-old abandoned cities of Dandan Olik, Oilik, and Karadun, which are located northeast of Khotan in the Taklamakan Desert, as you know. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All these familiar places. Yeah, I'm oh. sorry to bore you with the... Uh, I know you know all of this. I've been here for a few times. I had uh, I lost two camels. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, precis. Jag vet ju också att det är omöjligt att på våren göra den här resan. Of course. Why go in the spring? Aldrig mycket mer. At the beginning of March, he discovered Lake Boston, 
one of the largest inland bodies of water in Central Asia. He reported that this lake is supplied by a single mighty feeder stream, the Kaidu River. He mapped Lake Karakulshan and returned on 27th of May to Khotan. And on June 29th, which happens to be my birthday, oh, he started congrats. out. Eh, I wasn't alive yet, but yeah. Okay. He started out from there with his caravan across northern Tibet and China to Beijing, where he arrived on March 2nd, 1897. He, he returned to Stockholm via Mongolia and Russia. Mm-hmm. So he he's considered a, a successful uh, expeditionist now. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so non-impressed. <laughs> so now on to the second expedition. Our boy is now a successful explorer with one expedition under his belt. Another expedition in Central Asia followed in 1899 to 1902 through the Tarim Basin, Tibet, and Kashmir to Calcutta. Hadin navigated the Yarkand, Tarim, and Kaidu rivers and found the dry riverbed of the Komdarya as well as the dried-out lake bed of Lopnur. Yeah, he found dried out lakes, so I guess now it's just desert, it's ruins. Yeah. Uh, near Lopnur, he discovered the ruins of the 340 by 313 meters, formal, former walled royal city, and later Chinese garrison town of Lulan, mm-hmm. containing the brick building of the Chinese military commander. A stupa and 19 dwellings built of poplar wood. He also found a wooden wheel from a horse-drawn cart, as well as several hundred documents written on wood, paper, and silk in the Karosti script. And these provided information about the history of the city of Lulan, which had once been located in the shores of Lopnur, but had been abandoned around the year 330 uh, CE, which I'm guessing is before Christ. Uh, it should be BC. Uh, so after, what is CE? Christ, I don't know, but it's uh the, <laughs> but they but uh they said the 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 city had been abandoned because the lake dried out and they didn't have any drinking water. Now oh, okay, so according to documents, <laughs> yeah. the documents that he found shows this. Okay, oh yeah, still not impressed. Nah, uh, he <laughs> he tried to get to the city of Lhasa, the inner center, Lhasa city, and the administrative capital of Tibet, which was forbidden to Europeans. What's wrong? I don't know if you've seen what happens when Europeans go places. <laughs> uh, it gets you, you, you <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> or colonized is another way to put it. <laughs> oh, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> but they're like, no, 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 no. You're not coming here. Uh, and he, so he continued to lay in Ladakh district, India. From lay, uh, his, his route took him to Lahore. <laughs> so he's had escorts and Lahores. Yeah. Uh, and, I had uh, to go there. <laughs> his, route, his route took him to Lahore, Delhi, Agra, uh, Lucknow, Benares, to Calcutta, meeting there with George Nathaniel Curzon, England's then viceroy to India. Hmm. And a viceroy is like who England like made the leader for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The expedition resulted in 1,149 pages of maps on which he depicted newly discovered lands. Hmm. No, not impressed. Not, still not impressed. No, I, I get it. He was the first to describe the Ardang formations in the Lok Desert. Wow! <laughs> now we're talking! Uh, he was raised to untitled nobility by King Oscar II in 1902. Okay. So he said, like, you're noble-ish. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the last time, that's the last time any Swede was to receive a charter of nobility. 
Ja, men det sista... Vänt, okej. Okay. Så ingen har gjort någonting som är nobelt. Det här är inte nobelt. <laughs> What? You're teaching all these places about this, the, the world. Nah. <laughs> and then if they wanna if they wanna explore it and like he's working with all these other countries too, you know? Oscar I, I don't like him. <laughs> Oscar the second wow, it's so weird you won't like this guy. He's a great guy. Okay. Oscar the second suggested that he prefixed the name Hadim with one of the two common predicates of nobility in Sweden, which is off or form, as we know. Uh-huh. But Hadim was like, no. No. He he said he didn't want to do that. Okay. He said he will uh And many noble families in Sweden is customary to do without the title of nobility. I don't need it. Okay, cool. That respect. Yeah. Uh, in 1905, he was admitted to membership in the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. Cool. And in 1909, to the Royal Swedish Academy of War Sciences. Are you? They are both. Um, I mean, it is good. War science, like that's part of it if you learn the lay of the land it helps us in advantage yeah that's and true. wartime this something I think that's why it's so important back then so that they could have a advantages um to know the terrain yeah uh, from 1913 to 1952 he held the six of 18 chairs as an elected member of the Swedish Academy in this position he had a vote in the selection of Nobel Prize winners. Wow. So they are impressed by what you are not impressed. Yeah, 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 but you do me better dom Nobel So now he's a veteran. He's got two successful expeditions under his belt, but he wasn't done yet. Between 1905 and 1908, he investigated the central Iranian desert basins, the western highlands of Tibet, and the Trans-Himalaya, which for a time was afterward called the Hedin Range. Ah, fikken, uh, yeah, man. He visited the ninth Panchen Lama, which is like uh, what is it? The ninth, <laughs> the ninth Panchen Lama. <laughs> so the ninth Lama that boxes. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yes, exactly. In the closest city of Tashil, Tashilhampo in Shigatse. Hedin was the first European to reach the Kailash region, including the sacred lake. Manasarovar and Mount Kailash. So it seems like he's doing stuff nobody's interested in doing. Yeah, it's just and name like, dropping. Just walking around. Oh, then I picked Kashilabash, and then I was Dishilidash, and then I buried Bombili Bombo. Fuck, I don't care. But the, where he went to, Lake Man- Manasarovar and Mount Kailash, is, is the middle of the earth, the midpoint of the earth. According to Buddhist and Hindu mythology. No, okay, but it doesn't sound. The most important goal of the expedition was the search for the sources of the Indus and Brahmaputra rivers. Brahmaputra? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Both of which had been found. I called it, I lived in Brahma a time, I had a moped. I called it for Brahmaputra. <laughs> 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. From India, he returned via Japan to Russia and Russia to Stockholm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he returned to this from this expedition with a collection of geological samples, which are kept and studied in the Bavarian State Collection of Paleontology and Geology of Munich University. These sedimentary rocks, such as breccia, conglomerate, limestone, and slate, as well as volcanic rock and granite, highlight the geological diversity of the regions visited by Hattin during this expedition. So it's very important. This man is changing the world. It's very, very <laughs> boring. That's yes. what it is. Uh, in 1923, he embarked on a journey around the world. He started, uh, he's toured the U.S. during eight months, getting better to know but never fully appreciate the country. He therefore, and certainly later, politically criticized. Aha. Under vilken period could say on? This is the 20s. Okay. 1920s. He lectured, met people of importance, marveled at the sight of the Grand Canyon, and visited movie stars in Hollywood before he crossed the Pacific to Japan. Why would you go that way? Then he returned to China and Peking. The visit there was shortly, short but surely strengthened his never abandoned plans and dreams to return to China and Central Asia. So he got a little thing for that. Yeah. <laughs> Traveling through Mongolia and Siberia, he stayed in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Then uh, Petrograd, discovering that his relationship with Russian scientists had not turned completely sour. On the contrary, Sven Hedin's political views before and during the First World War has certainly estranged him from his old friends and colleagues in Russia. Mm-hmm. And for that matter, in Britain and France. Hedin had difficulties in accepting and understanding that science and politics could not be kept apart. Again, well-received in the country that once had offered him such a lot of support and kind attention made him see many extenuating circumstances in the newly established Soviet Union he's visited. Ah. <laughs> also, it had a strong leader. H- H- Hedin admired leaders who brought order to a previously chaotic situation. Men, var det Lenin då eller Stalin? Uh, 23, that's got to be Lenin, right? Yeah. I think so. Jag har skrivit ett musikal om Stalin. Men jag vet fortfarande inte när det var. Jag glömde bort det för länge sedan. Uh, oh, really? All right. Uh, we'll go forward a little bit in this. Hedin met Chiang Kai-shek in Nanjing, who thereupon became a patron of, of his uh, latest expedition. This is his fourth expedition he's on now. Okay. The site is called the Sino-Swedish Expedition and honored with the Chinese postage stamp series, which had a print run of 25,000. So they printed 25,000 stamps to try to fund this. Okay. The four stamps show camels at a camp with the expedition flag and bear the Chinese text, Postal Service of the Prosperous Middle Kingdom, and Latin underneath, Scientific Expedition to the Northwestern Province of China. <laughs> it needs more than seven. Uh, a painting in the Beijing Palace entitled Nomads in the Desert served as a model for the series. Of the 25,000 sets, 4,000 were sold across the counter, and 21,500 came into the possession of the expedition. Hedin used them to finance the expedition, selling them for a price of $5 per set. Hmm. Businessman. Mm-hmm. You see, they were sold way cheaper. The stamps were unwelcome at the time due to the high price, but Hadim was selling them at, but years later became valuable treasures among collectors. 
Okay. Good. Yeah. Smart. Uh, the first part of the expedition from 27 to 32 led from Beijing to the over the Gobi Desert through Xinjiang. I don't even know how to say yeah, that. Urumqi. Urumqi. And uh, to the northern and eastern parts of the Tarim Basin. The expedition had a wealth of scientific results, which are being published up to the present time, like today. Okay. For example, discovery of specific deposits of iron, manganese oil, coal, and gold reserves is one of the great economic relevance in uh, for China. So he uh, received the Berlin Geographical Society, uh, gave him an award, the Ferdinand von Richthofen Medal in 1933, hmm. which is the same uh, award that was given to Eric von and some other people. I don't know. I don't know these names, man. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Von, I don't know these. Uh, Eric Von, somebody. Somebody who accepted their Von. Eric Von, some Chinese. <laughs> uh, from the end of 33 34, he led on behalf of the Kuomintang government under Chiang Kai shek in Nanjing, a Chinese expedition to investigate irrigation measures and draw up plans and maps for the construction of two roads suitable for automobiles along the Silk Road from Beijing to Xinjiang. Hmm. Following his plans, major irrigation facilities were constructed. No, you don't care. No, I, mean, I mean, I mean, I get it. It's important. He's helping to build a new a new world, man. Fine. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. No, you don't. This is the that is Svensfield. <laughs> Caravan, uh, oh yeah, he had, um, he's using vehicles now. Uh, vehicles came along. Uh, uh, his caravan of truck lorries was hijacked by the Chinese Muslim general Ma Zhongying, who was retreating from northern Xinjiang along with his uh, Kuomintang 36th Division, um, Revo- the National Revolutionary Army from the Soviet invasion of Xinjiang. While Hadim was detained, he met General Ma Hushan and Kamal Kaya Effendi. He could be lying about that too. Yeah. Uh, Zhong Ying's, he claimed that uh, Ma Zhong Ying, geez, had the entire region of Tian Shan Nan Lu, which is southern Yin Yang. Shout out to all those places and the people. <laughs> Under his control and spend capacity through safely without any troubles. They got through. I okay. didn't believe his uh, assertions. Uh, some of Zhong Jing Tunyan's. Uh, troops attacked Hidin's expedition by shooting at their vehicles. Hmm. So he got set up. So then uh, on his return trip, he selected the southern Silk Road route via Hotan and Xi'an, where the expedition arrived on February 7th, 1935. This dude's done a lot of shit, though, man. Yeah, I mean, I've never been in the middle of this. Because you'd never be interested in that. It's so interesting of geography. At the end of the expedition, Hadin had considerable debts at the German-Asian bank in Beijing. Okay. They want their money, so in order to pay them back, he told them he could use royalties and fees received for his books and lectures. Mm-hmm. The months after his return, he held 111 lectures in 91 German cities, as well as 19 lectures in neighboring countries. Mm-hmm. To accompany this lecture tour, he covered a stretch as long as the equator. Wow. Yeah. 
23,000 kilometers by train and 17,000 kilometers by car in a time period of five months. Jesus. But if it was good night. Yeah. He met um, Adolf Hitler in Berlin before his lecture on 14th of April, 1935. In the interval between his second and third expeditions, he had truly gotten a taste and interest for politics, not only participating in the debate around the failing union between Sweden and Norway, but also in the Times strongly criticizing the British for uh, the invasion of Tibet in 1904. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about his political leanings. He was a monarchist. Okay. So he believed in the king and queen and all of that. But you didn't have to be the democracy or the... He was not with the... He was against democracy. Yeah, that's right. Because there are people who stood the monarchy now, but they would never have to say that they didn't believe in democracy. Well, from 1905 onwards, he took a stand to, against the move toward democracy in Sweden. Wow. He warned of the dangers he assumed to be coming from Tsarist Russia and called for an alliance with the German Empire. Oi! Therefore, he advocated a strengthened national defense. They had Lincoln coming. This is the link up from the last Yes. Nazi fuck. You missed that one of the Some Chinese guy. <laughs> <laughs> he advocated strengthened national defense with a vigilant military preparedness. August Stringberg was one of his opponents on the issue. Huh which divided Swedish politics at the time. In 1912, Hedin publicly supported the Swedish Coastal Defense Ship Society. Hmm. He helped collect public donations for the building of the Coastal Defense Ship, HSWMS Sverige, which the liberal and anti-militarist government of Karl Staff had been unwilling to finance. Okay. So he's trying to get the ship built to yeah. strengthen Sweden for war. In early 1914, when the liberal government enacted cutbacks to the country's defenses, Hedin wrote the courtyard speech in which King Gustav V promised to strengthen the country's defenses. So he wrote the speech that the king said. Okay. The speech led to a political crisis that ended with Staff and his government resigning and being replaced by a non-party, more conservative government. He developed a lasting affinity for the German Empire, with, with which he became acquainted during his formal studies. This is also shown in his admiration for Kaiser Wilhelm II, whom he even visited in exile in the Netherlands. Influenced mm. by Imperial Russia and later the Soviet Union's attempts to dominate and control territories outside of the borders, especially in Central Asia and Turkestan, Hadim felt that Soviet Russia posed a great threat to the West, which may be part of the reason why he supported Germany during both world wars. Okay. Uh, okay. He, re he, re he viewed World War I as a struggle of the German race. And took sides in books like Ein Volk in Waffen, then Deutschen Soldaten Gewiedmet, a people in arms dedicated to this German soldier. Hmm. As a consequence, he lost friends in France and England and was expelled from the British Royal Geographical Society. Well, and from the Imperial Russian Geographical Society. Yeah, you reap what you sow, <laughs> camel murdering fucker. <laughs> Germany's defeat of World War I and the associated loss of his international reputation affected him deeply. That Sweden gave asylum to Wolfgang Kapp as a political refugee after the failure of the Kapp push is, is said to be primarily attributable to his efforts. Okay. Hedin, mm -hmm. he, had a ever, he, had never, he had a never abandoned conviction that Germany would be the only nation in Europe powerful and righteous enough to stand up to the Russian threat. 
And he was a person that rarely changes his opinions. <laughs> <laughs> so in 35, he's back in Sweden. At the same time, back to a new political landscape in Europe. During the rest of his life, until his death, he was ceaselessly occupied with the publication of the results of the Sino-Swedish Exposition. Mm-hmm. Expedition. It was a matter of raising funds for his boys to write up their materials and get their books published. He saw some 35 volumes being released before others had to solely take over. He also had to write books for the public to learn to earn money, preferably at least one for each Christmas so he could get some cash. He's got no wife, got no kids, got no husband, nothing. For Just, each Christmas? Every Christmas, he's got, it feels like he's got to write a book so that he can make some money. What should I give to my friends on Christmas? I'll write a book. Exactly. The nature of the books changed, even though he still had a lot of material, not the least great adventure from the last leg of the expedition to offer the readers. The new German leaders called upon him. So, um, so good. He was very popular in Germany. Most of his money was generated by his German editions. Mm-hmm. The German leaders believed that this admiration extended to other countries, making Hedin the ideal person to explain, in quotations, the new Germany to the outside world, as well as explaining German virtues. To anybody uh, in Germany who still had doubts. Precis, det är bara att de, förstå- de, de har inte förstått det ändå. Yeah, det är alltid ett bra tecken att Tyskland är typ så här. Mm, uh, let me see, can you help me to explain the territory over here? <laughs> is, it, is it tank safe? Because <laughs> you exploded, right? Yes, yes, it does it. Uh, he was considered a true and never faltering friend of Germany. Oh. Which in fact he was. He was taken on extended tours to see what the Nazi regime wanted him to see, and then to write about his observations in convincing words. Mm-hmm. He was generally taken by what he saw, a resurrected beloved Germany after the disgraceful end of the Great War, which is World War I, and the interlude of the Weimar Republic that he had never liked. That was me. Okay. And he and, did and write, I didn't fart. <laughs> <laughs> and he did write about what he saw. But he also saw and wrote about developments he did not, at this time, like. Like the treatment of Jews and Nazi policies towards the church. So he did write that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and those passages were not appreciated when the manuscript was proofread by the Ministry of Propaganda in Berlin. <laughs> Dean was requested to substantially either delete or rewrite objectionable parts of the manuscript, marked with red when it returned. So they marked it red. I need to rewrite this. And he refused. Uh-huh. And then Germany's like, well, we're not going to publish your book. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. So he, he, he still uh, felt like they're still peace seekers. I'm not really high at that night. He's like, they're still, they're, you know, Germany, they just, you know, they, 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 he trusted them and he still believed them that they're good people. They just, you know, got to be pushed in the right direction. The war soon broke out and was to, and, and to him, he thought it was justified. From the German point of view, he followed closely from all the sources available and he tried to make the best out of what happened on the battlefields and in the diplomatic corridors. He was out there trying to uh, pump, like, shouting to everybody that Germany is right. Uh, he didn't travel to war fronts this time, but he saw the German leaders, including Hitler, a number of times in Berlin, discussing the war, arguing for Finland. Uh, Hedin was a unique, in a unique position to have personal access to Hitler and his men. And to the Swedish government, he was a unique source of direct information on German opinions expressed by the Nazi leaders. He believed what they told and promised him. He understood and agreed to the reasons for Germany to occupy Denmark and Norway. But he considered Quisling a traitor and saw no reason for any Nordic country to not adopt 
a Nazi political and ideological system. But Nazism worked in Germany, he thought. Okay. So it won't work here, but it's good in Germany. And uh, and uh, the situation it had experienced during the Weimar Republic. Uh, and again, the threat from the East, this time Bolshevist, uh, condoned any German action to stop it. They still try to make excuses for Germany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, men de har, de har invaderat Frankrike nu. Uh, nej, nej, nej. Uh, det som hände var att de, uh, de, 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 de hade inga baguetter. Och, uh, de, uh, But uh, not, it feels like they invaded them. <laughs> nej, 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 nej. Polen också. It's in the it's in the capital city. Warsaw. <laughs> Is there a Warsaw without war? They're just trying to bring it to fruition. Yeah, you think they saw war, but they were in Warsaw. <laughs> exactly. Just think about it. Uh, so the war uh, the, it started promisingly for Germany at first, uh, but it didn't keep going. The, in the positive way for Germany. What? <laughs> yeah. And uh, what happened? <laughs> and Hedin was like, <laughs> he was like that. What's yeah. going on? Why is Germany losing? Uh, and the, he didn't understand this tilt of fortune, and uh, was eventually forced to buy the German explanation for it: conspiracy between America and the Bolshevist Jews. Ah. He notes in his diary. Uh, He has notes in his diaries that include more and more unattractive passages. How much he knew about German atrocities against the Jews and other ethnically and socially unwanted elements is not sure. His notes indicate uh, that he either suppressed what he knew or actually did not have the picture clear to him. So mm. he probably suppressed is what I'm guessing. Förmodligen. Har man, har man investerat så mycket tid i att säga att man stöttar någonting, då kan man liksom inte backa sen. Yeah. Uh, and he he said that uh, he he couldn't believe that German soldiers could commit outrages like what they're saying. No. And the German character would simply not allow such conduct. Ah, uh, no, so true. The Tyskan are not held. As I said, man will not believe that. Like that was going on, yeah. Yeah. In Russia now. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah. uh, Hedin's conservative and pro-German views eventually translate into sympathy for the Third Reich. And this would draw him into increasing controversy towards the end of his life. Hitler had been an early admirer of Hedin, Hedin who was in turn impressed with Hitler's nationalism. Hmm. So they like each other. Hmm. <laughs> uh, he saw the German leaders rise to power as a revival of German fortunes and welcomed its challenges against communism, Soviet communism. Uh, he met Adolf Hitler and other, and other leading national socialists. Repeatedly and was in regular correspondence with him. I had a, a, a note when he wrote to Hitler. Like Hitler had a, a, a glowing review of his. Uh, okay. In October 1942, Hitler read Hedin's book entitled America and the Battle of the Continents. In the book, Hedin promoted the view that President Roosevelt was responsible for the outbreak of war in 1939 and that Hitler had done everything in his power to prevent <laughs> war. Moreover, Hedin argued, the origins of the Second World War lay not in Germany's belligerence, but in the Treaty of Versailles. This book deeply influenced Hitler mm -hmm. and reaffirmed his views on the origins of the war and who was responsible for it. In a letter to Hedin, the following day, Hitler wrote, 
I thank you warmly for the attention you have shown me. <laughs> I don't know how to do it. I have already read the book and welcome in particular that you so explicitly detailed the offers I made to Poland at the beginning of the war. Hitler continued, without question, the individual guilt of this war, as you correctly state at the end of your book, is exclusively the American President Roosevelt. You know, I wasn't sure <laughs> from the get-go if I was supposed to kill all the filthy Jews, but Sven Hedin, you have convinced me that this path is the right one. The right one. <laughs> the right one. Uh, they were they were given awards to him. The, the, the Nazis, Nazi Germany. Has some gold teeth. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> it's a necklace made of gold, golden. I'm Jewish. Uh, <laughs> well, that's all the all your gifts are teeth, man. <laughs> <laughs> Guldklockor står inte tillhörande <laughs> Here's another gift for you Hedin he, uh, he, he, he got um, They asked him to present an address On uh, on sport as Teacher at the 1936 Summer Olympics mm-hmm. In Berlin's Olympic Stadium I don't know if you know about the Olympics We learned about it in school uh, That um, They wanted to prove that, they, that The, the Aryan that. white was the supreme just And that's the same Olympics that Uh, Jesse Owens came through and whooped everybody. Ah, uh, yes, this that. And uh, Hitler was pissed. And, you know, in Germany, they had the black American dust everybody. And uh, yeah, yeah. So that was that's one thing we learned. Yeah, uh, they made him an honorary member of the German Swedish Union Berlin in '38. They presented him with the city of Berlin's badge of honor. Jesus. They honored. Him, they awarded him the Order of the German Eagle. When he turned uh, 75 on his 75th birthday. And that's only been given to Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh. Hmm. Or it had been given to them, not only them. So basically, uh, they're loving him, man. Yeah. Hedin supported the Nazis in his journalistic activities. Uh, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. uh, after the collapse of Nazi Germany, he did not regret his collaboration with the Nazis. Hi. Because this cooperation had made it possible to rescue numerous Nazi victims from execution. Nazi victims? Or death. Oh, I mean, uh, so in, exter- in extermination camps. What? What? Who? He. Uh, did I not include that? Yeah, man. Thank God that he supported the Turkish regime, so did he get out? He. I don't get it. I don't know if I included it in here, but I'll just say I'll summarize that okay. he had some friends. Like, if he didn't write what they didn't want him to write, yeah, they would dangle. People like they would take in people or remove people's passports and stuff like that. His friends that were in Germany. Ah, uh, okay. So they were like he had friends that went to concentration camps. There's some correspondence in here too. Okay. Uh, that that uh, he would the the Nazis would take them and be like, okay, you don't want to write it like this. Well, we'll we'll put them away, and then he would relent, and then finally write it the way they wanted him to write it. Oh. In exchange for the person. To be taken out of the concentration camp. So Fethan let say hunsas. Yeah, exactly. Like a little coward. Yeah, yeah. He was like, I'm, he said he freed, and then he said he freed. Uh, he, he says he freed over a hundred Jews. You know, spread propaganda. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Interesting uh, tanke experiment. Uh, he said he 
he he did that, but then there's no proof that he freed a hundred anybody. No, no, no. Um, he did, but there is one. There's one guy. There's definitely one guy who was his passport was taken, who went in a concentration camp and had correspondence back and forth with Hadim, who was who was thanking him for saving his life. Oh, okay. Uh, M. Yeah. So it's 98 more to prove that he... <laughs> what, what is it? Don't say it's suitable. Schindler's list. He who saves one person saves the world entirely. I'm not <laughs> so good on you. <laughs> Way to go. Good on you, Sven. He did write that... He wrote a book. He, he refused to publish his book, uh, Deutschland uh, unter Weltfrieden, which is Germany and World Peace. Yeah. Because the Reich Ministry for Public Enlightenment and Propaganda insisted on the deletion of Nazi critical passages. Uh. In a letter he wrote to the state, uh, to State Secretary Walter Funk, Walter Funk, it looks like, dated. <laughs> Walter <laughs> Funk? <laughs> he says what the, um, he was critical about the um, extermination camps. And he said, when, I, when we first discussed my plan to write a book, I stated that I only wanted to write objectively, scientifically, possibly critically, according to my conscience. And you consider that to be completely acceptable and natural. Now I emphasize in a very friendly and mild form that the removal of distinguished Jews, Jewish professors, distinguished Jewish professors, mm -hmm. who have performed great services for mankind is detrimental to Germany. And that this has given rise to many agitators against Germany abroad. So I took this position only in the interest of Germany. My worry is that the education of German youth, which I otherwise praise and admire everywhere, is deficient in questions of religion, and the hereafter comes from my love and sympathy for the German nation. And I, as a Christian, he is a... Of course. He's part Jewish as well, too. Yeah. Yeah, he had like 116th Jewish. Uh -huh. I, I I think he touted that later to kind of be like, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. hey, Boston. He leaned, leaned into the one-sixteenth. Yeah. Part. And I, as and as a Christian, I consider it my duty to state this openly and to be sure, in the firm conviction that Luther, that Luther's nation, which is religious through and through, would understand me. Mm -hmm. So far, I've never gone against my conscience and will not do it now either. Therefore, no deletions will be made. He then later published his book in Sweden. Hmm. And this is when oh, this is the part I'm talking about. He uh, he refused to remove his criticism, uh, and then they were like, all right. And they confiscated the passport of his Jewish friend, Alfred Philipson. Oh, okay. And his family uh, in 1938 to prevent their intended departure to America in exile. And retain them in Germany and put, basically put them in a, con in a concentration camp. Mm. Mm. And then he changed. Okay. He changed the, he, he did what they wanted. Yeah, you got the Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, as I said, he lied about the hundred people that he helped. And um, in the last years of his life, 1945 to 1952, were devoted to defending his position during the war, trying to instill in people that Hitler, after all, was right. Wow. And should be appreciated for what he had done for wow. Germany. What yeah. a fucking idiot. <laughs> the memories of the Versailles Treaty popped up again, but this time Germany was utterly defeated and the conditions imposed upon the country were much harder. Mm -hmm. Remember they had to pay, I think it was $140 million. After the first war, yeah, yeah, it was shot. And uh, the Second World War. Ah, uh, 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 The Second World War, they went even harder on them. Uh, uh, the okay. world did. Still, Hadin hoped and was convinced that Germany again would rise from the ashes. Oh. Yeah, he's learning. 
Uh, social life around them was not as hectic as it used to be. A certain degree of social isolation followed. Yeah, that's no shit, Sherlock. Upon what was also his defeat. It would take a long time, however, until Sweden started to make full accounts of his role during the war. So they tried to keep it under wraps, too. And then came Teach Me Sweden. Yeah. He turned to writing some more personal books, delving into the past, returning to Berlin around 1890 and Stockholm before the Great War. He turned to memories of meetings he had had with a horde of important men and a few women of his times. There were too many to choose between, he says. He never married nor had any children. He died on November 26, 1952 at the age of 87. Mm, uh, at the time of his death, he granted the rights of his books and extensive personal effects to the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. Sven Hedin Foundation established soon after holds all the rights of ownership. And that's the story of Sven Hedin. Fucking tråkig nazist, alltså. He traveled all over the world and decided. He saw so much of the world and uh, decided. You know Tyskland! <laughs> Nazis. It's pretty good. I know they're on your. It's very good. Uh, oh, man. Can't all be uh can't all be great. Men visst är det, det är viktigt att upptäcka allt det där. Yeah. Men visst är det tråkigt. Tycker inte du? Yeah, I mean, maybe I, I kept too much. I could have skipped through some. Nej, nej, nej. Det här är ingen kritik mot dig. Jag menar, det är ju viktigt att upptäcka världen. Yeah. Men det är så fruktansvärt tråkigt. I can't imagine walking through a desert. Like, what? <laughs> like when one camel dies. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh... Bara för att typ säga så här, sanden är lite annorlunda här. Who gives a shit? <laughs> so true. That, uh, that, to me, that's not, but I do think it's impressive to go somewhere nobody's been. I do think that's Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolute. And to, to chart it out, to help people in the future so we don't have to go. Like uncomfortable regions, like Nazis. <laughs> Yeah, he wants to he wants to go in uh, uncharted areas like supporting Nazis. They look they look too much like. Alla vill vara i Paris. Vad vill du vara? Öknen. Vad vilken sida vill du stå på? Vi på rätt sida. Fel sida. Okay. Exactly. Oh yeah. Sven Hedin, man. Sven Hedin, man. Jag är tacksam för att jag fick lära mig det här. Det här hade jag aldrig fått höra om inte du hade teach me. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Going. Yeah, he was. I can't do that either. I, I pride myself. I'll just say one last thing. I, I pride myself on uh, being open to being wrong. Självklart. Han vägrar ju bara lyssna. I find that to be... I, I find it personally to be something that's where we need more of in the world. Yeah. It's like everybody's steadfast in their beliefs and in their corners and stuff. And so defensive, especially right now, polarization of everything. Mm-hmm. And and he he's an example of it, man. This dude was willing to spread propaganda. Yeah, you think it's good to think that man has right, but it's really dangerous to know that man has right. Oh, I like that. It's just like I would have been like, you know what? I was I don't mind saying I was wrong. No, I mean, so so does science work. When science works, it's the best when man all the time is ödmjuk for that man can have wrong. Especially somebody who. Learned all of these languages, did all of this schooling, so educated. Yeah. So you've seen yourself learn shit. So. Men grejen är att man lär sig ju ingenting 
och lära sig språk. Alltså, du kan ju bara prata språk. Alltså, det är skitbra. Ja, men det är more than that. Philosophy eller... Filosofin låtsas. Fan. Are you trying to discredit this man? <laughs> <laughs> man, well, he deserves to be discredited. Fuck yeah, him. Yeah, he learned nothing. Yeah. yeah. Fuck this guy. Except some Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this was uh, this is the longest one we've done so far, huh? Oh. I'll cut some down anyway. No, no, no. Allt ska med. Var enda ort, var enda stad, var enda land. Den här my head off to you. I try. Bra jobbat. I try. All right, well, it's been the latest episode of Teach Me Sweden. If you have some uh, suggestions for us, then it's teachmesweden at gmail.com. If you want to support us, patreon.com slash teachmesweden. We appreciate what you can give us, and we give back to you as well. Yeah. Thanks so much for checking this episode out. It's been Jonathan Rollins. Okay, Grostrom. We'll teach you Sweden next time. Peace. Peace. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.